Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, November 22nd, 2016. Nice snowy day here in North Dakota. Looking forward to Thanksgiving. Going to be awesome. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up the Scriptures and do the comparative work. Now, as part of your discernment um, education, it well, you, you have to deal with the topic of apologetics. Now, in the school of apologetics, there are two schools. There are, there are two houses, if you would. The house of the presuppositional apologetic folks and the house of the evidential apologetics folks. Now, here's, I'll, I'll just kind of lay this out. I think both groups are right and both groups have some weaknesses. I learn from both groups and I think it is important as Christians that we be able to give an answer and a reason for the hope that lies within us and at the same time understand that the reason why unbelievers are not Christians has nothing to do with the fact that, um, well, we haven't been able to reach them with a reasoned argument. But that being the case, Christians need to be ready to give an answer and need to know where the answers are. And Christianity is not, as Kierkegaard would lead you to believe, a leap into the dark. No, Kierkegaard's wrong on that. Um, And as a result of it, there are many folks out there who just basically, when it comes to the tough apologetic answers to really sharply uh, worded uh, attacks against the Christian faith by skeptics and atheists and things like that, a lot of Christians just disengage and are not willing to uh, go out onto the battlefield for whatever reasons. Um, So with that kind of in mind, our lecture today that we're going to be listening to for uh, our episode of Fighting for the Faith is a recent lecture given by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on how pastors can help the laity defend the Christian faith. Now, that being said, you know, you have to understand the limits of evidential apologetics and its function in helping to keep Christians from having their faith stolen from them by 
really slick, bad, uh, atheistic and skeptical arguments. That's one reason why you need to know evidential apologetics. Um, but the other thing is, is that um, there are oftentimes people who are genuinely asking questions and and don't know how to make heads or tails of it. And they really think Christians are people without brains who've, you know, you know, pretty much drank the Jesus Kool-Aid. And that's not true either. So uh, th- this is going to be an interesting lecture uh, because he's going to, uh, Dr. Rosenblatt's going to take uh, to task some of the presuppositional folks uh, in one of the weaknesses of their approach. And I think he has some uh, points that he that he brings up that I think are valid and worth considering. So with that in mind, here is Dr. Rosenblatt in his lecture on how pastors can help the laity defend the faith. Here we go. How pastors can help their laity in defending the faith. First, the basics, and I'm sure you got this better from my predecessors here. Our English word, apologetics, comes from, comes from the Greek. The Greek word, apologia, refers to a reasoned defense, usually in the context of a court of law. The classic example is Socrates on trial for corrupting the youth of his day. He and others were called upon to offer arguments that the charge against him was false. In a Christian context, Peter writes, but always be prepared to offer an apologia a reasoned defense for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and meekness. 1 Peter 3.15 Grammatically, this is an imperative, a command to all Christians. We are to be prepared to answer the question, why do you believe the gospel is true? The ancient uh, meaning is almost diametrically opposed to our English word apologize. Christians are not here being commanded to apologize for the fact that they're Christians. So we must all, when we hear that word in our in Scripture, put our English meaning completely out of our minds. Instead, we must use the ancient context, somebody on trial. We are to, ma- to imagine a command to be prepared like a defense attorney with arguments. In this case, arguments in favor of the truthfulness of the gospel. In the earliest years, beginning in the book of Acts, continuing on from that point, Christians argued the truthfulness of the gospel, one, on the basis of fulfilled prophecy, particularly messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, when the audience was Jewish. And two, when the audience was primarily Gentile, on the basis of miracle, Jesus' public miracles done at will, but primarily his bodily resurrection from the dead. Why miracle? Because Jesus himself pointed to these. For example, if you do not believe my words, believe me on the basis of the works that I do. They bear witness of me. Or, Just as, Greek kathos, just as Jonah was in the belly of the Leviathan for three days, even so, again kathos, shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. In our American context, the usual is for Christians to answer in terms 
of what philosophers call subjective immediacy, roughly the equivalent of the old Ackley hymn, You Ask Me How I Know He Lives, He Lives Within My Heart. The problem, in addition to how foreign such statements are to the New Testament text, is that this is a completely subjective response. Subjective responses, I felt a liver shiver when I first embraced Jesus, are impossible for the non-Christian to evaluate for their truth value. They can't crawl inside our skins. What we call Christ in our hearts, the non-Christian can legitimately interpret as nothing more than heartburn. And why should he not think that? What is called for is an objective case for the truth of the gospel. Can that be done? Is it even possible to do such a thing? That's the subject I attempt to address. Apologetic urgency today. There was a time in this country not that long ago when multitudes had respect for the Christian claim, even for the text of the Bible. Even non-Christians could and often did respect both. But such times are past. What we have these days is the situation described decades ago by, by media genius Marshall McLuhan, a society that is global, secular, and pluralistic. One need not point to the violent expansion of Islam in order to get the impression that something is deeply askew, deeply missing in today's Western world. No longer do most Westerners have the convictions we had prior to the two world wars. That is, all men are basically good. <laughs> or that history is somehow headed inevitably upwards. Hundreds of books and articles have attempted to explain how and why the West has become increasingly secular. But I don't want to and I'm not competent to tackle such a broad subject. What I do want to tackle is the apologetic urgency that's placed on Christians who live in an age such as ours. Note that we're in a situation not all that different from the one faced by the earliest Christians living during the time of the Roman Empire. Think, for example, of the Christians living in Corinth during those times. Corinth was roughly the equivalent of our Las Vegas Yet with all the congregational problems in Corinth that were so obvious in Paul's letters to them, he still had a singular message to them. I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2. St. Paul helped to clean up to answer the problems within those congregations, but he returned to his theme I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified to anyone who might listen. If there ever was a time when, one, a clear preaching of the gospel, and two, a defense of it as genuinely true was called for, it was then, in Corinth. Same for the Western nations today. With all the forces aligned to see historic Christianity as no more than trivial, as if the Christian claim is somehow the equivalent of the tooth fairy. What are we Christians to do? Christian representation is virtually absent in our real think tanks, in our news media, 
in our magazines, in the worldview of our significant institutions, by which I mean the ones that sort of control how we think and what we think. And I'm not talking here about politics. Rather, I'm talking about the categories which, for good or ill, provide the structure for how we see our lives, our culture, and our world. Is genuine Christianity something that can legitimately provide a a view of the world, of ourselves, of meaning, that is adequate for such a time as ours? Is it not only equal to, but better than today's secularism as an interpretive grid? Don't answer too quickly, because the next question is predictable. How is Christianity a truth claim at all? Why? On what basis is it superior to other views of the world? If it is, tell me the details of that, how it qualifies. Why should any thinking person even spend time on the truth or falsity of the Christian claim? Is there anything inherent in it that would justify giving mental time and effort to seriously considering it? And what exactly would that be? The urgency of well-thought-out Christian response at this point is critical for Christians and for the world at large. That response has got to be more than emotional on the basis of the inner satisfaction we feel from being Christians. That won't cut it. Neither is adequate to the task. If we respond because the Christian gospel is true, we are, as I said, immediately going to be asked the basis for such a statement. In the case of today's secular Westerners, a basic explication of the Christian claim might be the first time they have ever heard the actual Christian claim, even if they've gone to church for decades. C.S. Lewis's little book, The Case for Christianity, did this for the World War II generation in England. Winston Churchill himself asked Lewis to speak to the troops who were going off to die, particularly the pilots of those Spitfires. He knew that eight out of ten of those kids was going to die in his cockpit. What what, uh, Churchill said to Lewis was, you seem to be able to communicate to people how to go to heaven in a way that the priests can't. If you could do that, it would be the greatest help to England. So, night after night after night after night after night, he was doing what's in that little book, The Case for Christianity. It's the first book of mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is some idiot editor's compiling of three books into one. You can sometimes find, find it on its own, buy ten of them. Because the non-Christian will look at mere Christianity and say, maybe I can get to that on vacation next time. If they look at the case for Christianity on its own, they say to themselves, I could read that this weekend. Many who heard his radio broadcast talks offering arguments why they should believe Christianity is true had never heard such a case made in their English churches, even if they attended regularly. 
any adequate presentation must include <clears throat> the Christian claim regarding the depth of the fall and its effects on us all. It will set forth Jesus' claims regarding himself, claims to be nothing less than God in human flesh, and his work to die for the sin of the world, to rescue real rebels from the just condemnation of God. It will set forth the central Christian claim of justification by grace sola or alone, through faith in Christ sola or alone, on the basis of Christ's cross and death sola alone. And these themes will occupy center stage in anything a serious parish does, pulpit, curriculum, all activities. But in times of great skepticism, a parish must, in addition, regularly have available a reasoned defense as to why the gospel is true for members, even more for visitors. For example, a parish could have evening meetings designed for people who believe nothing at all, a venue that is safe and is for the purpose of asking questions and for hearing arguments for the truth of the gospel, and maybe even short bibliography of the top apologetics books. I suggested this to 12 Lutheran parishes of two synods when I was uh, serving as an interim pastor here in Southern California. 12 boards of elders of 12 Lutheran churches, Redeemer was one of them, that I would, if they set it up, to invite people in a five-mile area of the parish, get the addresses from a welcome wagon, send out a well-done invite on really quality paper, tell them that they will have quality coffee, not bad coffee. We might have some refreshments. There will be no church members there, and we will take no identification, no card to fill out, nothing. They can stay completely anonymous. And everybody who's in that room is the same as you. They're not Christians, and they just want to ask some key questions. 12 out of 12 turndowns I got from 12 out of 12 Lutheran parishes. Hmm. Don't ask me whether I believe the Missouri Synod's in favor of evangelism. I don't anymore. Now, at the same time, I want to contend that this apologetic need in our day is urgent, critical. I want to claim that though we might think preparing to respond to such secular, secular inquiry is the mental equivalent of climbing K2, in reality it is not. And I'll try to explain why in the rest of my paper. Lutheranism's unique focus for apologetics. For the better part of the 20th century, confessional Lutherans have published almost nothing in this field. And this should come as no surprise, because Lutheran seminary curricula have no courses in the field of apologetics, required or elective. A Christian denomination that does not offer training in apologetics at seminary will not develop in its young scholars the impression that the cognitive defense of the truth of the gospel is somehow important. In the classical theological curriculum, apologetics was one of the three components of systematic theology, 
The other two being dogmatics, we'd say doctrine, and ethics. So it's not obvious why a conservative denomination, including a Lutheran one, would ever jettison such a basic ingredient of systematic theology. But Missouri has. Gone. Has been gone for 100 years, minus about six years when Adam Francisco was teaching at Fort Wayne. Miserable years for him, primarily from his colleagues, not the students. Such a state of affairs is completely understandable in the case of Protestant liberalism, given that liberals long ago embraced the basic unity of all religions. Protestant liberals believe that at center, the basic message of all the religions of the world is the same. It usually was said to be moral, perhaps what we call the golden rule. But conservative denominations never embrace this imagined core sameness of all religions. Biblically oriented Christians always thought that this claim on the part of the Protestant liberals was intellectual rubbish and could be, by even light research, shown to be intellectual rubbish. Usual anti-apologetic Christian responses, which we will not pursue in detail, have been twofold. First, the more intellectual representation of the anti-apologetic position, so-called presuppositional apologetics. I wish this weren't in our dogmatics, but volume one of Peeper is a mess. And I'm a lover of Peeper's, Peeper's dogmatics. Uh, there's a young guy at Fort Wayne who has been asked to rewrite the prolegomena. Uh, Roland Ziegler. Roland Ziegler. God, pray for him. Uh, anyway, presuppositional apologetics. The method which is very common in solidly reformed Christian circles, asks the non-Christian to begin by assuming the whole truth of the Christian claim. Assuming it. Then they tell the non-Christian that his acquaintance with the external world will, as a result of having assumed the whole Christian position, Bible and all, it's true, will find that they're their view of the world is more coherent, more understandable than is the case than in any other position than the Christian one. So their emphasis is on pointing out internal inconsistencies in non-Christian positions and the lack of inconsistencies in the Christian position. Its unfortunate weakness uh, is that at no point does the Christian actually defend the truth of the Christian gospel. Hmm. Second, the less intellectual representative opposed to apologetics, Protestant pietism, and we spawned it. For most of us, this position is more familiar of the two. The basic idea in pietism is that cognitive arguments in favor of the Christian gospel are less than spiritual. They should be avoided by Christians. Instead of offering arguments, the truly spiritual Christian should pray for the non-Christian's conversion. Again, but for different reasons, the Christian is discouraged from attempting to argue in favor of the truth of the gospel. 
Many Christians have been told by Protestant pietists that arguing that the gospel is true, offering arguments why it's true, amount to trying to take the place of the Holy Spirit. What does classical Lutheranism have to offer in the enterprise of apologetics? Much. And it's so familiar to many of us that we don't even notice. The undeniable emphasis in confessional Lutheran theology is that it begins with the person of Christ, his true deity, his true humanity, his single personhood, Next, his work, particularly his dying, a substitutionary and vicarious death for the sin of the world. The Christian claim is that three days after he died, he bodily, literally, rose from the dead. St. Paul defends the fact of Christ's resurrection in all of 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is an argument that he rose from the dead, or an argument as to what it would mean if he didn't, for all of us. In Romans, Paul writes that this was for our justification. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also argues if Christ was not raised from the dead, we Christians are most to be pitied. But there's another aspect not often mentioned, even on Easter morning. The resurrection of Christ was God the Father's factual verification of the truth of all the claims of his incarnate Son, that Jesus claims regarding what his death would do, that it would be a death to save sinners, can be trusted as true. That's why Mark and Mark were saying, this is where all the marbles are. And St. Paul agrees. It is not accidental that Lutherans are often accused of being Unitarians of the second person of the Trinity. Lutherans are Christ-centered in ways that other denominations' theologies are not. For example, Lutherans are not known for deep studies in the classical arguments for the existence of God. Our students are made to be familiar with them, but they're not really central for us. Lutherans work from the, uh, from the center of the Christian timeline, the incarnate God, Christ, then backward to the Father, then forward to the end. The best 20th century Lutheran representative of this uh, orientation is Dr. John Montgomery. Virtually all of his books and articles demonstrate this Christ-centered approach to the questions most often asked by non-Christians about the truthfulness of the Christian claim. And it's his training, uh, in my case, that undergirds anything in this little essay that is good, right, and salutary. It is I who am responsible for any aspect of it that's less than these. Apologetics and adult education. What about a possible connection between Christian apologetics and Christian adult education. Is there such a connection? And if there is, what is it? I'm going to defend the thesis that not only is there a connection between adult Christian education and our apologetic calling, but that it is much more important than most of us Lutheran pastors think it is. That shouldn't surprise us. When you don't teach apologetics in seminary for 100 years, why would any of your pastors think this was important? It wasn't available to them. 
Many Lutheran laity know that one of the key callings of a pastor is, in all his preaching, his sermons, to proclaim God's law and to proclaim the biblical gospel to the congregation with emphasis on the gospel. He is to proclaim the person and work of Christ, to proclaim what we call the chief article, justification by faith sola, and particularly the for you aspect of it. And the laity are correct in in all of this. For any confessional Lutheran, this is the central aspect of a confessional Lutheran pastor's call to do word and sacrament at the congregation to which he's called. What about the aspect of the Lutheran pastor's call that has to do with Christian catechesis of teaching not only the youth but also the adults? Part of that calling is to prepare his laity for the objections to the gospel he or she will certainly, in our day at least, hear from family, friends, workplace, media, everywhere. And on the positive side, to aid his laity assigned to him to be able to offer objective evidence in behalf of the truth of the gospel. Now, for some, this will sound like a tall order. Where do you start? Does every layman have to know how to answer any question a skeptic might present? For those asking this, I have some good news. Coming up to speed in apologetics is nowhere near impossible. It does not entail becoming somehow a living, breathing encyclopedia of information and in an unrealistically short amount of time. Helping laymen here is much less daunting. For example, in adult education, a pastor could do a course on small apologetics books with which his laity should become acquainted. Not to memorize them, but to consider loaning them out or even giving them out to particularly, particular non-Christians with whom they're conversing. The layman just needs to know the case well enough to hand out the book with some knowledge of what's in it. The other side of the pastor's task will be to introduce laymen to books which may answer their own questions, or even questions of others. In part, the pastor wishes to equip laymen to bring people into the faith, in in part, to inoculate them against shoddy thinking that they'll run into. One book will apply to a particular non-Christian, his or her questions, another book to other non-Christians who are asking different questions. To aid in this, our little group of about eight guys, 1517legacy.com, will be marketing as aids outlines of many of these important and often very short books. These are not, of course, substitutes for actually reading these best-of books. Rather, they are maps to the content of each in Harvard Outline format. For example, would it be worth your time, your energy, to have an outli- in outline form the top seven to ten of C.S. Lewis's most important apologetics books? Or his essays? 
or those of Dr. Montgomery, for example, history, law, and Christianity? Would you imagine that these maps might aid you in reading the actual books, and they're short, especially if these outlines were not just accurate but cheap? I always cut a lot of slack to Lutheran pastors in their apologetic calling because for the better part of a century, none of them had available to them seminary courses in the subject. No wonder the whole enterprise sounds strange, foreign to them. It would to me, too, had I never had a professor even mention the importance of arguments in behalf of the truth of the gospel. For my generation of pastors, what's behind their eyeballs, even if it's unsaid, is this. Rosenblatt, if this stuff's so damn important, why didn't any of my favorite profs at St. Louis ever mention it? Answer, because their profs didn't have courses in it either. <laughs> Lay people, be light in blaming your confessional Lutheran pastor for his lack of familiarity with the apolog- apologetic aspect of his calling. Nothing in his professional training helped him or offered it. In this aspect of his training, he and all his classmates were cheated by their own church. If you're inclined to assign blame for this, just know that you will have to search a long, long way back in time to find those who eliminated from the Missouri Synod the whole apologetic enterprise from seminary training. You'll find it, but it's a long ways back. Very simply, your pastor's professor didn't get such training either. If you want to get your pastor to help the congregation in this regard, go easy on him. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's lecture by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on how pastors can help the laity defend the Christian faith. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that 
I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book, he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh-huh. Right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I, I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website. And you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today.
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Christianity no way requires you to stick your head in the sand and say, oh, mommy, mommy, make the bad people go away when the faith is being challenged. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you decide. That's right. There are four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here Without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lecture by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on how pastors can help the laity defend the faith. Here we go. The place of printed matter. My students are sort of surprised or taken aback when I tell them that often the major aspect of the laity doing apologetics with friends, family, acquaintances is simply lending to them great apologetics books or essays. We imagine that we have to become acquainted with every argument, have all of them on the tips of our tongues. That's simply false. We do not. When I was in seminary, such writings were almost unknown. Other than Dr. Wilbur Smith's book, Therefore Stand, and the magnificent books of C.S. Lewis, a young Dr. Edward John Carnell was just beginning to be published. Uh, He was uh, at Fuller Seminary back when it was worth attending. Same for Dr. Bernard Ram. Dr. Montgomery was still an undergraduate at Cornell majoring in classics and philosophy. By and large, apologetic books, books designed to offer arguments in favor of the truth of the Christian gospel, were as rare as hen's teeth. C.S. Lewis stood out like a sore thumb, but his readers quickly began to number in the millions, and they still do. There are a lot of reasons for this, but one of the main ones is that he defended the truth of the Christian gospel using arguments as to why the gospel is true. How times have changed. Soon, the InterVarsity Press began to publish the books of Francis Schaeffer, books that changed the intellectual axis of university students, Christian believers. Not only that, InterVarsity began to publish small monographs by recognized evangelical scholars on apologetic subjects. These were physically the size of playing cards, very short. The titles of these included... The Impossibility of Agnosticism, Dangerous Christian Books I've Read, Christianity for the Open-Minded, Doubters Welcome, 
the evidence for the resurrection, and so on. In InterVarsity's His magazine, students could read apologetics articles by Dr. Montgomery, uh, History and Christianity, The Place of Reason, and others, and articles by the late Paul Little, What Non-Christians Ask, Is Faith for the Ignorant, and so on. Now today we have a plethora of Christian apologetics books, articles, websites, audio sources, and so forth. But it's only come to be in the last 20 or 30 years. Now an important caveat or two. First, this assumes that the non-Christian is able to read. Even able to read complex sentences. This becomes more dubious with every year a youngster is in the government schools. What we used to call the public schools. Books are only useful for those who are able to read. I'll leave it at that. Second, we must know that most of the young today have been taught that in the realm of religion, nothing could possibly be classified as genuine knowledge. This was the fight that John Henry Cardinal Newman was fighting a century ago in his book, The Idea of a University that at state universities there ought to have been a department of theology. And even if somehow it could qualify, today's young know that every source is written from some bias or other, vitiating all text-based claims. All you have to use is categories of power. What were they trying to uh, win at? And to make matters worse, today's Westerner holds that the best one can expect to find is that some religion that provides him or her inward satisfaction. Why? Because as everybody knows, subjectivity rules in matters religious. It is a very rare person who even imagines that the religious truth question could ever be solved uh, in an objective manner. 99% of people, that wouldn't even cross their minds enough to be thrown out. Poor university students are taught that all claimed meta-narratives, overall explanatory grids, all of these are necessarily false. What could ever cause a student to accept such a strange a priori position? Postmodernism, a la Derrida and others and the authority of his or her professors at college. Blah. Third, we are all, no matter what our denomination, going to have to severely limit, maybe even eliminate, books from our own denominational publishing houses. Almost all of it is written for only insiders, believers meaning it should never be given to a non-Christian. None of it. Ninety percent of what most denominations, including ours, publish should purposely be kept away from non-Christians, books which are damned from the start. Virtually none of these books scratch where the non-Christian itches. They're almost never directed to non-Christian readers who are searching. That means that Christian, Christian people must find better material 
than that that comes from their own publishing houses. Books designed and written for doubters. Books that set forth genuine arguments. Books that attempt to answer the most common objections to Christianity. We at 1517 Legacy are going to attempt to play a small part in remedying this situation, way beyond Lutheranism, but including Lutheranism, provide material that's designed for the non-Christian. Or think of this subject in another way. John R. W. Stott long ago published an excellent little book titled Basic Christianity. In the preface, he offered a possible prayer for the reader to pray. It went something like this. Oh God, if you're there, and I don't believe you are, and if you can hear this, and I don't believe you can, I promise that if I find Christ's claims about himself and the meaning of his death to be true, and I deeply doubt these claims are true, I will bend the knee to him as Lord and God, even as my Savior. Amen. Sound anything like a book your seminary professors could ever have written? I doubt it does. I know our confessional Lutheran professors would never put such a prayer in the preface of their books. And for a very simple reason. Our professors don't write books for non-Christians, for doubters. But Father Stott was part of the university world in England. He spoke and wrote for InterVarsity there, and he knew well what it was to present the gospel to hundreds of students who did not believe that gospel. The place of audio and video sources. Next, very quickly, I want to say a little bit about audio sources, which can be made very easily available to members of any congregation. Again, I confine myself to just to the subject Christian apologetics, no other. As I said, in our day, there now exists a plethora of digital audio, even digital video, sources on the subject of Christian apologetics. But back when I was serving as InterVarsity Associate Staff at six Southern California secular universities, such sources we could only have dreamt of. As usual, there was nothing from confessional Lutheran sources, with one sole exception, Dr. John Montgomery's Sensible Christianity. It's an audio set. So far as one could tell, Lutherans had no interest whatsoever in the field. And as I wrote earlier, uh, there's no seminary courses in the subject of apologetics and no books from our publishing house, let alone audio apologetics lectures. Every parish should have a copy of those discs so people can check them out of the church library and listen to them. We market them through 1517, so that's truth in advertising. But everything of his we now market. He's taken all of it out of Canada and given everything he's ever done, including audio, to 1517. It's all available, and we're trying to keep it cheap. Um, In evangelical circles years ago, audio cassettes of well-known speakers were passed around to others, lots of them. 
That was already common practice. Not so common was the passing around of newer tech video cassettes playable on corresponding machines. Such machines were then expensive to buy for churches, certainly for families, and the cassettes were expensive as well. Anyone remember Blockbuster movie rental? Once families finally owned a player, they got access to movies by renting copies of them at their local Blockbuster rental outlet. Hard as it might be for all of us to imagine, there were no personal computers yet. No desktops, let alone laptops. There was a beginning internet, but only for the military and university access, not for you and me. And what would you have I have used to access this strange internet? As I said, there were no personal computers yet. Now listen up, pastors. Probably the best apologetics item you can add to your church libraries is Dr. Montgomery's sensible Christianity. He delivered those introductory lay-level lectures at parish after parish after parish after parish of all Christian denominations except for one. The LCMS. Why? He was never invited to. From the beginning, Dr. Montgomery designed these lectures to be understandable to the layman, not just to educated clergy. Finally, they were all laid down into audio cassette format and made for available for purchase out of Canada. Now, of course, they're in digital format, and we at 1517 have these for sale at a relatively low price. I can't encourage you pastors enough to somehow make these available to laity in your congregation via a copy in your parish library. It is the best possible way, admittedly passively, to turn loose a Christ-centered, fact-based apologetic to your laity. And if they love them, they can purchase a set. Or pastors might walk the congregation through each lecture Sunday by Sunday. In 1517 Legacy Com, we offer each lecture in outline format. Think the teaching company. Anybody recognize the teaching company? Really? You ought to look that up. The te- it's marvelous on every kind of subject. Understanding opera, uh, calculus for those who think they can never get it. What they did was pick the top 500 lecturers in the U.S. and put them on their favorite subject and videoed it and audio. And with every little container, there was an outline of each lecture. Um, Dynamite stuff. But avoid it like the plague for anything in religion. Don't even think it. Uh, Mark made reference to Bart Ehrman. He does all the New Testament stuff. Don't even think it. But anyway, on these sensible Christianity lectures, we'll make available to the pastors and parishes at next to nothing cost outlines of each lecture, just as the teaching company does. Um, Then, if your laity like that sensible Christianity series, consider adding to your church libraries as well Dr. Montgomery's audio set the defense of the gospel through the ages. As the name implies, this is a study of how the greatest Christian apologists met the challenges of their time with particular defenses of the truth of the gospel, of the Christian claim. 
Uh, we again have outlines of each one of those, uh, every lecture in the set, and that's cheap uh, for the parishes to have those in hard copy. I would love to say I was competent to recommend video sources in Christian apologetics, but the world of YouTube and other such sites is still pretty foreign to me. I'm embarrassingly ignorant of such sites, but Mark and Mark are not, and others are not. Uh, if you can manage to find other Christians interested in our subject, they might be able to point you to websites that are worth checking out. As a confessional Lutheran, I'd say to leave all the science versus scripture stuff out. Not, not at the start. Leave it out. Um, avoid sites that major in philosophical arguments for theism. Bare theism. Belief in God. Why? Because theism saves nobody. Begin with sites that argue on the basis of facts, the case for Christ being God in human flesh, and the true Savior of the world. First things first, right? Okay, in closing, how am I doing? All right. Years ago, a pastor friend in Northern California told me that his area was filled with hostility toward Christianity, toward the claim that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He said, Rod, I live in the land of Druids and Wiccans. This remark illustrates the fact that after two centuries of enlightenment rationalistic blah and skepticism, during which even many theologians and pastors didn't believe very much, the door is wide open in our day for people to believe anything and everything, and they do. You might not have druids and wiccans in your midst. It might be Muslims, Buddhists, Mormons, psychics, spiritists, universalists, or the new nuns, N-O-N-E-S, Pew Study. They're increasing like crazy. But whether it's the -the run-of-the-mill atheist or a member of some strange suicide death cult, we still are called to be prepared to offer an apologia for the hope that is within us. In my estimation, the apologetic task that lies before pastors today is both harder and easier than it was a generation ago. It's harder, on the one hand, not primarily because the marketplace of ideas has become saturated with religious options, but rather because most people are inconsistent postmodernists about it all. How so? They're quick to say that everything is relative and that one belief system is as good as another so long as it works for you, but they're even quicker to condemn Christians who make the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only Savior this sinful world has ever known. To this, the prudent apologist can respond in a way that's consistent with the words of St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, quote, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This divine power that destroys strongholds and arguments amounts to what we call the law. Logic, rational arguments, common sense, and whatever else exposes the flaws and contradictions in someone's opposition to the gospel, meant to convict them in their suppression of the truth. But, of course, 
Sinful man will fight tooth and nail like a lioness for her cubs, even to remain illogical so long as he doesn't have to bend the knee to Christ. We ought to expect it. On the other hand, the task is easier today because the conversation is currently open. Some people are actually willing to listen to a clear proclamation of the gospel and a reasoned defense as to why this religious option in particular is superior to all others. Again, only an objective case for the truthfulness of the Christian claim can set it apart from the cacophony of subjective voices peddling their claims. 1 Peter 3.15 again. The claim that, God, that Jesus died for the sin of the world at a real time, in a real place in history, and rose from the dead also at a real time, in a real place in history. This means that as much as possible, doing apologetics will remain centered on Christ, even while appealing to evidence and employing arguments. In short, apologetics is meant to serve in the communication of the gospel. Let us therefore not keep silent or lose focus while this window of opportunity still remains. In closing, and again this was to pastors, I realize that almost all I have said to you is highly hortatory, that is law, not exactly the same as preaching Christ and the forgiveness of sins into your ears. Forsooth. Still, I hope you pastors find some encouragement in this little essay. Learning the basics of apologetics is nowhere near as as difficult as many assume. A careful reading of just a few of the best books on the subject will help you to teach your laity how to withstand objections and defend the Christian gospel. And a fair amount of them will be interested, too, your laity. Um, Some will even plead for more. Why? Because in conversations, every single week they face apologetic issues and know all too well that they need some help. That is, in part, why you have been called and ordained to serve them. May God, therefore, grant you wisdom, resolve, and courage as you endeavor, in the words of Luther, to use all your cleverness and effort and act as lion hearts in your defense of the gospel as true. Thank you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you with the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by carious death on the cross, for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>